hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us. My name is Sol and today we have Senator Kim Pate with us and we are discussing lack of mental health services in Canadian correctional facilities. Um, hello Kim and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to join you. I join you. I come to you from the shores of the Kitchissippi, the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek, otherwise known to many people throughout the world as uh, Ottawa in Canada. Let's talk about the available mental health services and educational programs in our Canadian prisons, especially for the youth. Sure. Well, there there certainly are supposed to be education and health services available at the same uh, accessibility and availability as exists in the community. That's, you know, uh, I, I say that's obviously not true, although it may not be obvious to many people, having worked in and around the um, youth the provincial, territorial, and federal prison systems for about four decades now. It is so obvious to me that I it, I feel it should be obvious to everybody, but of course it's not. And when people read the law, particularly um, I find when people who are from outside the country, but even within Canada, read the law, including many lawyers, they presume that individuals who are incarcerated, whether it says young people or as adults, have access to programs and services that quite frankly don't exist. And in situations where it's been, whether it's investigations, commissions of inquiry, inquests into death, routinely, um, I've you know, I, I've been party to situations where correctional authorities have come before, uh, you know, courts, uh, inquests, coroners, um, commissions of inquiry, and have testified to the fact that there are a whole series of services and supports available that I know practically quite frankly, don't exist or that are very, very limited. And so I routinely will say to lawyers who are working on those situations, judges, if I'm involved in uh, judicial education uh, services or doctors who may be doing, uh, in some cases, it's doctors doing coroner's inquests, that they should always ask the next question, which is you get a whole list of programs and services. The next question should be, how often are they provided? by whom, to whom, in what numbers, with what frequency, and what are the results. Then you get a very, very different picture. And so in most cases, you'll get a whole list of programs or services available. If you ask, for instance, in the area of mental health, if you ask um, who provides those, it looks like, and many of my colleagues, when we were debating uh, the what was often referred to the end of end to segregation bill as it was characterized by the government uh, in 2019 many of my colleagues including people who were trained in medicine and law uh, were similarly uh, duped i would say or um, persuaded to believe that the plans that correction uh, that the government articulated that corrections articulated were going to be in place would in fact be done so for instance one of the things we were told was that every single person coming into a prison within 24 hours would receive a psychiatric assessment a psychological assessment by a trained professional 
Okay, how did that roll out? Well, in practical terms, what that has meant is someone who receives some orientation training about how to administer a checklist is the person who actually is the trained professional, if I put that in air quotes, who then do, you know, administers a checklist essentially to an individual. And does it happen within 24 hours? Well, much of the time it does but not always. And in fact, it's more likely to be within the first 30 days. But if it is done even within 24 hours, it's not the type of mental health professional many people thought we were, uh, we thought was the evidence we received, which was that it would be a trained professional. So oftentimes you have to be very, very conscious of the language being used. And it, it sounds terrible and um, a level of paranoia often creeped. It sounds like a level of paranoia from the some of us who have been doing this work for a long time, but we're often extremely cautious and, in, and extremely, um, you know, conduct a very thorough analysis of what is the language that's being used. Because is it is the checklist administered by a trained professional? Well, yes, it's a professional correctional officer. It's not a healthcare professional, which is what many people thought that meant when we were hearing it uh, presented to us. Similarly, education-wise, in even in youth uh, prisons for young people where education is supposed to be mandatory up until age 16, individuals, unless they have some kind of um, exclusion, uh, you know, or are being homeschooled or something else, the expectation is people are enrolled in education up until the age of 16. So you have young people going into custody. The presumption is uh, you'll often even see the, the name of a school being used to, you know, such and such post-secondary education or facility or collegiate institution even. And again, you have to examine what that means. And in some cases, it can be incredibly robust. It's often more determinative of the management and the administration of the institution as to how robust that is. And so you will see sometimes full, um, you know, full school types of operations. You'll always see in most, oh, I should say you always, in most prisons, federal, provincial, or youth, you will see a school area, uh, areas that look like classrooms that have books, but you may see very limited instruction or staff members who have a huge caseload and essentially are being um, administering uh, distance education types of programs as opposed to actually teaching Day, you know, day in, day out classes. And so it's a very different picture often than that is put forth. Now, there are some ex exceptions to that. I actually don't know where they're operating fully functional right now in this country, uh, but I certainly have seen them in the past as recently as a few years ago, I was in a, a youth jail and did see young people engaged in classroom learning with teachers, uh, not all, and not all were able to obtain their um, their education. And unfortunately, in most cases, they end up with a great equivalency uh, graduation, if you will, what's often referred to as a GED, uh, grade equivalency diploma, rather than the same level or degree or quality of education that is expected in a post-second or in a secondary school education. When it comes to post-secondary education, it's virtually impossible to access. In most 
prisons in this country. There is no access to internet. Uh, in fact, I would say officially there is no access to internet. In some cases, uh, you'll have very dedicated teachers uh, who will download materials for students so that they can participate. Uh, but because so much, particularly during this pandemic, we know has moved to online learning, the fact that people in in uh, penal institutions do not have access to the internet means that their ability to access post-secondary education is extremely limited. And so they're stuck with the very few institutions uh, in this country. I think there's only one, maybe two left who offer distance education or vocational training uh, by correspondence alone, paper, pen and paper, if you will, uh, correspondence alone. And so it's extremely difficult. And in 1992, the provision of on-site post-secondary education in our federal penitentiaries was ended. Though many people didn't realize that um, that we had post-secondary education in federal penitentiaries at one time. It was, it was not a long period of time. It was over the space of just over a decade. Uh, but in some cases, universities, for instance, set up satellite campuses. And in some cases, those universities continue to try and have relationships with students. So for instance, I was at Uvica last month and, and when I was there, there certainly are um, a couple of people who are still doing courses. And when I attended UVic more than 45 years ago now, uh, there was a satellite, a, a form of satellite learning that existed. And some professors actually went into the federal penitentiary and offered classes. We're long since past that. And none of that is funded by the federal government anymore. And so even though we see a direct relationship correlation between level of education, level of supports, so access to everything from post-secondary education to appropriate um, health and mental health supports, as well as the ability obviously to provide for oneself but that education and training provides, we have seen the um, evisceration and di significant diminishing of those resources over in particular the last three decades, but I would say over my um, my working lifetime, I've seen those resources become more and more limited and more focus on individualized responsibility for that situation. And what I mean by that is it used to be accepted that when someone went to prison, it was the failure of every other system that led to that person being in prison, not just a personal failing. And so increasingly uh, and it's always be been of course the basis of criminal laws you're you're held criminally responsible for something you did uh, but the the overall concept historically has been that when every other system fails and we end up with individuals in the criminal legal system it's usually because they have had not had the same opportunities hence the reason that our prisons are full of the most marginalized whether it's economically racially uh you know the fastest growing prison population in this country is indigenous women not because they are the greatest they pose the greatest risk to public safety, but because they are the most marginalized. And it's also the same issues that give rise to them being the fastest growing prison population is also the issues that the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls inquiry pointed out, give rise to them to being more likely to be victimized, to be disappeared, murdered, and end up homeless and on the street. In your opinion, why the programs, available programs for female and male prisoners we're talking about the federal prisons. 
uh, why is it out of balance like it's not the same programs being offered well it's both out of balance and disproportionately uh, women are often I was shocked when I started working only with women now is you know I had been working with men for about 10-15 years and then about 25 years with women uh, and you know now I, I go into both uh, as well as youth prisons again but I was shocked at how the behavior that would not be seen as uh, as resulting in criminal sanctions for men would often result in criminal sanctions for women. That when we did things like say we would have a gender um, neutral approach to violence, for instance, that we started seeing women criminalized for defending themselves against abuse. and disproportionately criminalized in that context. So they're essentially deputized, told that they're responsible for their own protection. How many of us don't know and haven't heard those messages? You know, be safe, be careful what you wear, be careful what you where you go. Um, and so that, that deputizing of women to protect themselves. And then when the, the law does not, the state does not step in to actually assist with that protection. If women are left, and so many are, uh, to defend themselves, if they actually act to defend themselves, they're more likely to be criminalized and imprisoned, uh, in my experience, even than men when they would react. And so part of it is the misogyny of a system that's set up around men's rights historically. So, so the law of self-defense, for instance, was set up around the way men fight or the way men would um, come together and, and potentially use force against each other, not taking into account the disproportionate power and physical and other differentials between men and women and the situation when you have uh, long-standing abusive relationships. And so, so that's part of the picture, I think, is that uh, women who have in any way stepped outside of a you know, we, we like to think it's old and it's a stereotype and it's it's uh, no longer applicable. But unfortunately, when you walk into the prisons, you see it's not that if a woman does not act in a stereotypically meek, mild, whatever feminine um, manner, if they step out of that, if they take control of their lives, if they are trying to, you know, whether it's run, uh, do something like uh, trafficking in, in uh narcotics or something because that's the, because they can't otherwise afford to navigate the uh, poverty they're in or raise their children they're often treated as as worse than a man who might do might exhibit the same behavior and similarly when it comes to assaults you know let's not talk about situations the number of women who are co-accused in murders and serious assaults with men who may end up with longer sentences because somehow they're expected to be less likely to use instrumental violence. So we have all of those stereotypes. And then once we're in the prison, um, you know, sometimes people will describe it as economies of scale. There aren't as many women, so not, though so you don't have the same access to services and programs. I would say though, throughout the system, it really is the, um, the, I, I was going to say mean-spirited, and I think it is that, but it's the so-called law and order agenda that t has, you know, over the past few decades has certainly become more and more entrenched. It used to be you didn't find politicians afraid of saying, we need to focus on rehabilitation. We need to focus on ensuring that 
you know, once people are criminalized, if they go to prison, that we do everything possible to assist them to get out and integrate into the community. It became instead almost de rigueur that a politician would say, oh, well, if you've done something wrong, you know, not only do you go away, but you should be treated in the most, um, that you, you, you should be subject to the most horrific conditions and that the, the legal notion that the penalty is the separation from society has almost been all you know practically abandoned for this notion that the the that the penalty is to be put away and that whatever else happens there the longer more punitive sentence the better and you know we know that and it's done under the it's um sold under the guise that it's uh, in the interest of public safety we know that if that were true places like the country to the south of us would be one of the safest places in the world. So we know that punitive uh, regimes, longer sentences have not actually yielded the results and that it is in fact in countries where we have lower incarceration rates, better standards of living, better health care, better education systems, uh, less homelessness, less poverty, that you see everybody's standard of living being better, but you also see lower crime rates, lower cost to health care, particularly emergency health care, and that you see people generally happier. It, you know, it really does, you know, it, it it's mind boggling to me that we have continued on this trajectory and that we cannot seem to get uh, the mainstream political thinking out of that, even though privately, virtually everybody I speak to, including many who would call themselves conservatives, recognize that this approach is not working. The discomfort of being the ones to say so publicly is profound because the view is that, that it will result in them either not being elected or re-elected if they're elected politicians. And in the Senate, we've seen more um, take, you know, more individuals take stronger positions. But even there, people will say, well, we don't want to sound like we're soft on crime. And the reality is uh, it's just the opposite, that if we actually address the very issues that cause people to be in situations where they are uh, behaving in ways that harm other people, uh, if we address those issues, we're less likely to have them. The other paradox is we only focus on um, really the, the lowest um, echelons, if you will, of who's causing that harm. Canada is, uh, you know, one of the money laundering capitals of the world. And how and why? Because you can have offshore accounts, you can avoid paying taxes, you can, um, you can, you know, be, you know, hide behind numbered companies. And the fact that we have so much harm being caused that is never criminalized, and I'm not suggesting that I would advocate it being criminalized, but the fact that we have so many people getting away with uh, all kinds of incredibly harmful behavior, we, and when I say harmful, I don't just mean physically harmful, but harmful in the sense that it creates physical harm because people are struggling in poverty, people are struggling in increasingly inequitable situations that it, it actually, it causes a harm that is, uh, isn't experienced as an assault perhaps, but is certainly experienced as uh, longer term, uh, you know, shorter life 
expectancy, more likely to have chronic illness, uh, more likely to be victimized, more likely to be on the street, all of those sorts of areas. And so we haven't really addressed those issues. And so one of the challenges for me of saying, let's talk about the conditions of confinement is it avoids us saying, how is it that we end up with prisons full of the most marginalized when we know that it's not only those who are marginalized who cause harm? And, you know, I often use the example of impaired driving. Um, it's one of the few mandatory minimum penalties in our criminal code that has a way around the mandatory minimum penalty. And that is that if a Crown prosecutor agrees that an individual charged with impaired driving can go to treatment, they can avoid the mandatory minimum penalty. Well, in a country where we have eviscerated our healthcare system and to get into treatment means you probably have to use in, in time to be able to benefit from that agreement, you likely have to use your own resources. You have to have access to private funds, either through you know, your benefits program, if you have a, a robust benefits program, or to pay for it yourself. Because most publicly funded, not insured uh, treatment programs cost a lot of money. And if they are publicly funded uh, programs, they often have huge waiting lists, long, long waiting lists. And so the ability of people to access that is a very privileged position. And so how did that come about? Well, it's to me, it's not, it's not magic. It's not even, you know, difficult to understand. It is the fact that when we took seriously uh, drink, drunk driving and impaired driving and said, you know, police can set up roadblocks, they can stop everybody. Yes, we have a charter of rights and freedoms, but this is a reasonable limit because we want our streets to be safe. When that started, guess what? They caught people who had money and resources and power and influence. And guess what? They developed a mechanism around that mandatory minimum. Yet when we introduce a bill like Mobina Jaffer, the bill that Mobina Jaffer has introduced to allow judges to do their job um, and weigh all of the circumstances in a situation, Bill S-213 has not passed yet. It's in fact, she's introduced it. It's a third type, a third or fourth type of bill that she's introduced. I introduced the same bill three times. Uh, when Erwin Kotler was a member of parliament, he introduced it. And it was basically just to say, in situations where a judge looks at all these circumstances and decides it's not fair to impose a mandatory minimum penalty, they should have the discretion to not impose it. We've already got it for impaired driving folks. Why wouldn't we allow it for other areas? And so, but there's been huge resistance. And I think in part it is, uh, in large part, it is because of who's criminalized, who uh, who avoids criminalization and who avoids, uh, avoids incarceration. So my preference actually is to see the investment of resources in community, the reallocation of uh, income distribution in a more fair and equitable way, uh, the the insurance that we don't have these increasingly dichotomous economic realities for people so that we have fewer people being victimized and fewer people being criminalized and imprisoned rather than putting endless amounts of money into the prison system. And because of the strong lobby that guards unions have, even though in Canada we have almost more than one to one ratio of staff to prisoner. 
So it's it's the one of the highest staffing rates in the world of prisons, and yet we have fewer programs and services. So my concern would be the more we put more resources into prison, it get you it, it, you know it's I I'm not great at cliches and adages and metaphors, but you know it's that old saying that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, in a prison context, it's very very difficult for people who work in the prisons, for prison authorities to step back and say, you know, could we take a very different approach, a very open approach? And this year was the 30th anniversary of the um, the task force on federally sentenced women, which actually proposed that and looked like a brand new approach um, to, you know, to dealing with uh, women's, uh, the, the imprisonment of women in the federal system. And it was totally undermined by a correctional model that can't quite envision uh, something that puts people first and puts supports and privileges um, human development as opposed to, um, you know, using of restraints and, um, you know, not, not just physical restraints, but particularly physical restraints, but even chemical restraints. So when we talk about mental health in a prison setting, uh, it almost always comes with the use of physical and chemical restraints rather than the focus on actually addressing the issues that brought people there in the first place. Yes. Uh, so you see, um, most people do not understand this, that um, these prisoners that we think they should be held away from the society and, you know, they should be punished and there should not be any sort of um, training, any sort of programs available to them. What they don't understand is that these prisoners are coming back to the same communities and they're going to end up being, you know, somebody's neighbors. So how are, you know, Canadian prisons are are uh, training these prisoners? How we are training them, like, you know, when you go back to the community to have a proper life to not harm again? Well, they're not. I mean, uh, one of my colleagues who, who I rely on for information around things like the business, he was an entrepreneur. Uh, the first time he came into a prison, uh, because I've been encouraging senators, members of parliament, and uh, members of the judiciary have a right of access to our federal penitentiaries. So I've been encouraging since I joined the Senate um, almost five and a half years ago now, encouraging senators to come to jail and to actually see the conditions of confinement. And and about a third of them have. And one of one of my colleagues who came is a, an entrepreneur. The first after the first visit, he said, "Why do they call it corrections, Kim?" And I started to give a whole long explanation. He says, no, no. He says, what I saw was a punishment system. And punishment systems we know don't work. That it encourages people to avoid the punishment. It uh, it doesn't really show what behavior we expect of people. And and it was, it was such a, a simple but profound question that we often don't think about that you know, what is it we're trying to achieve? And and then he gave the example of, um, it was a prison that where I knew the individuals, it was a prison um, where women were incarcerated. 
And there were two instances where I had intervened. And one of them was a situation where a woman who was seen as by all accounts, a so-called model prisoner in the sense that she caused no problems to the administration. She did everything they asked her to do. And she was requesting to be able to go to a funeral of, I believe it was her father. There's no reason she shouldn't have been able to go. The rules all say she should be able to go. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a, a challenge logistically f for them. So they suggested that she not go, that she just have a video, uh, you know, that, that they FaceTime and they, they would give her access to the video to watch it. And she was heartbroken as who wouldn't be. And and so, you know, we I argued, she she was accepting of it because she had never challenged anything and i just in other women came to me and said this is rough we can rectify this and was pretty sure that it would be rectified because it was completely wrong anyway the long and the short is she did get to go so here's someone who does everything they're supposed to do everything they're told they need to do to be successful when they get out and still doesn't get what she needs later on in the day we were in the maximum security area with a woman who had a lot of mental health issues, has some intellectual disabilities as well. She was refusing to lock up and was, when she saw me, wanted to speak with me. And I said, you know, I'm happy to go in rather than you bring the emergency response team and escalate the situation. I've known her for a long time. I'm happy to go in and speak to her if you like. And so they, you know, they, it was not the usual practice. I went in, the long and the short is, you know, I, I helped her fill out paperwork. What she was doing is she was, she's getting no programs, no services, no support. And so was wanting to transfer to another institution. I'm not sure she would get any more services or support there, but her, you know, I was willing to assist her to try and get a transfer. So what she was doing was refusing to lock up and trying to create a kerfuffle. That's, you know, and it, it, it was really that it, it was not a violent intervention. It would have resulted in um, what I would re characterize as a violent intervention to quell her, to put her in restraints, lock her in a cell, and likely would have ended up in her being transferred out. Instead, we put in the notice, put in a transfer application, and uh, they agreed to process it. So here's a woman who has learned that you know, there's, you don't follow the rules, you, you know, you're not going to necessarily get what you need. And, um, you know, the only way to really address this is to become so problematic that they just want to get rid of you, essentially. So two women in the same institution, one not following the rules, quote unquote, according to corrections, the other doing it, neither of them getting what they need or, or want or what they're requesting. And yet, you know, just having reinforced the very behavior that uh, may have brought them there in the first place. The first woman was a co-accused in something. And what she learned that, she, you know, doesn't matter what she does, she may not get ahead. And so she just has to figure out who will help her get what she needs. And that may not be someone who has her best interests at heart. The other one, it may or may not ever get out but knows that she will just keep being shuttled around until when people don't want to deal with her and that if she really needs to get something that she wants that the best way to do that is to make everybody else want to get rid of her and move her to somewhere else and you know those are those are you know in the one hand sound like extremes but that is commonplace within the prison setting and so my you know fundamental view and part of the reason that uh, Senator Foreni Singh and I were working on the bill to that we've 
that has now been introduced as Bill S230, which, you know, was basically the amendments the Senate made to the segregation bill, Bill C-83, that were not accepted by the government. Many people know that about the segregation part, but what they didn't focus on was the fact that we were also trying to make uh, improve the areas of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act that allow for people to be released into the community in ways that are obviously safe for them. So uh, for, ment- for those with mental health issues, issues, there's a section 29 that allows for people to be transferred into the community for health reasons. It's usually only used for physical health reasons, heart attacks, cancer treatments, you know, the things that everybody recognizes can't happen in prison. Mental health the poor cousin of healthcare has often been treated as though somehow people with no training can address this, can diagnose, can address it. And so we were arguing that, and continue to argue that individuals with significant mental health issues should not, there shouldn't be um, a continuing, you know, facade that we're going to try and address this in the prison. We should actually work at getting people out into appropriate um, forensic or mental health settings. So that's one part of the bill. The other is um, really increasing the off ramps for people, you know, Indigenous people, uh, those of African descent, those who are are more likely to be uh, treated more um, harshly by the system because of the discriminatory, the racial, gender, um, and class discriminatory nature of the classification schemes and that sort of thing and and which of course impacts access to programs as well so that bill would actually facilitate greater access to the community and allow for communities to seek the resources that currently go into the prisons to set up those supports in the community a woman goes to prison for 20 years kind of support from the government is out there for these kind of women then you know uh, transition houses well, there's certainly halfway houses run by, um, you know, organizations like John Howard Society, Elizabeth Fry, St. Leonard's, Salvation yeah. Army. Um, and but for for many people, uh, those are really an extension of the prison setting in in a way. And for some, it's a, a, a necessary step. And but it's become um with some exceptions during this pandemic, it's become almost a necessary step into the community that people have to go through, even when they may have homes to go to, supportive communities, jobs to go to. And so originally um, parole or conditional release was brought in as a means of easing that transition to the community. Too often it's become a necessary step instead of, and, and almost an impediment to release. But for those people who have been in for very long periods of time, those kinds of transition periods and having a halfway house to go to, of course, is vitally important because, you know, imagine trying to find a job after being 20 years out of the labor market, being in your 50s, maybe, or 40s, and, and you know, trying to enter the, not only enter it at that age, but enter it without the job skills, without the, um, previous employment and with and with a criminal record it's a huge impediment and so and increasingly criminal records are um, people request criminal record checks for everything from leases for apartment you know to to get to be able to rent a place to live people require them for jobs uh, people require them even for seniors homes I've been dealing with people on parole who are you know are serving life sentences 
who are having huge challenges getting access to uh, a senior's home as they have dementia because they have a criminal record. I mean, the you know, the the extent to which we have set up roadblocks for people to not only be able to finish their sentence and move on with their lives, but to actually integrate into the community is, is huge and is often not you know, people don't pay attention to just how so significant those roadblocks are. I can't tell you how many people say to me, oh, well, you know, they were sentenced to um, life, but they got out after 25 years or 20 years or 18 years. And my response is like, think about that for a minute. Think about taking 18 years of your life and having to try and explain a way to get a job, to get an apartment, to get into a senior's home and or to your own family about or friends imagine having to explain those things and for women one of the challenges also is a condition of parole is often uh to declare to your uh, you know it's a, it's a from my perspective it's a very misogynistic condition but to declare all your relationships well, presumably they mean sexual relationships, but how many of us know that something is going to be a relationship the first time we meet? Or you have to determine that the person you're you're developing a friendship with or an acquaintance, you know, going for coffee, whatever, uh, that they don't have a criminal record. How many of us meet people and say, you know, hi Saul, I'm Kim. Do you have a criminal record? I need to know within the first five minutes because if I don't, I could be violating my parole. How many people do you think continue on with that acquaintance or friendship? And so, you know, it's, I, I make it sound a bit too flippant. I don't mean it that way, but that it, those are the kinds of challenges that are put on individuals coming out. And then they're told, well, you can't associate with people who were, you know, were part of your past or who have criminal records. Well, who else do you know if you've spent 18, 20 years in prison? Um, aside from maybe some of the volunteers who came in or some of the nonprofit groups or, or officer correctional officers but you're not allowed to associate with them either because they have a, a an employment condition that says they're not supposed to associate so it's a huge setup in my opinion and and one that's often not not if it recognized at all not credited with the, the being the kinds of impediments uh, that they are and so based on what you explained they will recommit yeah, I mean, the, the parliamentary budget officer in 2010 did um, an analysis of what the costs of the so-called tough on crime legislation. There was an omnibus bill that was introduced that year, Bill C-10, and they did a costing of it. And, you know, they essentially showed that we could be housing, educating to post-secondary education, even at Ivy League schools like Harvard, uh, individuals for what we spend to incarcerate them. Now, if we stop and think for a minute, what, how would it be different if we said, okay, Kim, you came into the prison system. A big part of this seems to be that you were, um, you grew up in poverty. You didn't have a lot of role models to to you know and supports to show you or to support you to have some different options you were trying to navigate a, a past history of abuse um you know you had been given no support so you anesthetized yourselves with alcohol or drugs to deal with that that led to you in you know also then trying to navigate um you know how do you get employment how do you keep it uh you were trying to navigate poverty in all of that 
if we could have solved the homelessness issue, the past trauma, the lack of access to education and training, if we solve that, the chances of you ever being involved in the system again would slip. You know, you can never be guaranteed zero, but I'm shocked by how many people don't come back into the system against all odds. And so if we just provide, you know, it doesn't require a lot of extra support to provide that leg up. And it's actually why I came to the Senate. I mean, it was a, you know, group of Indigenous women who really were, you know, urging and asking to put my name forward because one of the things that um, we know is that if we can address the poverty, the homelessness, the lack of uh, health supports, particularly mental health supports, that we will see very few, fewer people in the position that they are. And all the research has been done by people like I was just looking at um, Evelyn Forges and Hannah's um, book on called radical trust basic income for complicated lives they talk about people coming out of prison they talk about people escaping abuse um it it was part of the reason that i decided to come to this place because part of our role is to represent the interests of those that elected officials don't often represent and to look at the long-term interests of all canadians and so for me you know, breathing life into our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the stand of equality provisions in particular, to create a more equitable approach, to have things like guaranteed livable income, to have real housing strategies, to address the lack of clean water in uh, too many communities, to ensure more equitable access, and I would say free access to post-secondary education. Those are all things that would create a much more equitable society and provide people with opportunities to to not be in a situation where they're attempting to navigate poverty because we would do our best to eradicate it. And the parliamentary budget officer um, last year uh, put out a report showing that if we did things, implemented something like a guaranteed livable income, we would cut poverty within in half within one year. That is huge. And yes, it would cost, but people don't pay attention to what we're paying now. When people think about poverty, they don't think about all of the money that goes into social assistance schemes. They don't think of all the costs of emergency health care, of homeless shelters, of food banks, of food insecurity and how that impacts the costs of health care. They don't think of the cost of the criminal legal system. And I think we have to have a blunt and honest conversation, not just in this country, but in lots of places about where do we want to invest our resources, human as well as financial and natural. And if we're going to have a sustainable, economically sustainable, but also, uh, you know, as we're seeing with the fires and floods and the health pandemics, uh, a sustainable in terms of climate and healthcare, we have to actually do things very differently. And we have to uh, think about how we center uh, the well-being of everybody if you know and, and it's almost trite because you know as we know during the pandemic people have said if everybody's not okay nobody will be okay because the virus keeps mutating and and you know eventually it may mutate into a less deadly but we still have people dying right now COVID as man- mask and uh, you know vaccine mandates are being lifted Uh, because people are tired and quite frankly I think the governments are afraid people won't adhere to it and so 
you know, rather than criminalize people who have resources and means and privilege, yet again, we have a situation where we're providing the option out and not necessarily in a way that is healthiest for everybody. Timothy McConnell. You know, when I heard, um, you know, this story, I was thinking to myself, what we have learned from the deaths of uh, Ashley Smith. His mother thought that he's going to, you know, to prison and he's going to be eligible for, you know, programs and hopefully get help. That did not happen. Like, you know, from the death of Ashley Smith, my understanding is it should have been a major, major change in our prison systems. And, you know, with the programs being available, especially to young lives. And, you know, what really broke my heart and, you know, brought me to tears that they just say an inmate took his own life. Mm -hmm. You know, that inmate was somebody's son and he was only 23. Is there anybody being held accountable here? Well, one of the challenges is in those situations, even in Ashley's situation, initially guards were charged with uh, criminal negligence causing death. Many people still refer to Ashley's death as the suicide. Those of us involved in the in the inquest were adamant. It had to be clearly identified as a homicide. A yes. homicide being not a murder in the in, like a criminal uh, case, but in a in the context of the inquest, a homicide is a death that was preventable and uh, was as a result of the actions or inactions of individuals. What was unusual for Ashley um, is that unlike many families of prisoners, and as you've said, you know, people don't arrive in prison absent a life. They are mothers, brothers, sisters, aunties, uncles, grandparents, children. Uh, and so in Ashley's case, what was unusual in her situation, because there's another inquest happening right now, a woman almost exactly the same circumstances as Ashley, same prison, and but the family does not want any attention brought to it because the stigma of being a prisoner often extends to the family and friends and community of that individual. So what was unusual in Ashley's, um, when Ashley died was, her mother said very clearly, she was angry and rightfully, she had a righteous rage of, you know, they took her away from me and said, trust the professionals. She was 15 and then they sent her back to me in a body bag. And I want to understand if I don't understand how that happened, how can anybody else in this country? That was an incredibly courageous, clear thinking, transparent way of ensuring that we all got to see as best as we possibly could, what had happened to Ashley based on what came through the inquest. And I say as best we could, because of course, better would have been be able to have Ashley talk about it, but she wasn't available to do it. So in her situation, here's a young woman who, um, our, our lawyer who is now a judge, but our lawyer, when she was um, asking people questions, I said to her, I want you to ask every single corrections person three basic things. One, what they knew about Ashley, how they knew it, and what was she like with them. 
because by then I had a pretty clear idea that based on, and interestingly enough, I never got access to the coroner's brief and that's really unusual. I mean, I was the client, if you will, uh, on behalf of our organization. And normally you get access to the materials so that you can help prepare the case. I was getting so much information from people working inside corrections, prisoners as well, but this was the first time in my life, uh, you know, uh, working life, I would say, where I got so much information from people in the system who were, you know, new, you know, I by then had been working in the system for more than 20 some years and 25 years and people knew that I wouldn't hang anybody one person out to dry I didn't I, I don't see the benefit of holding one officer or one warden responsible not that I think they shouldn't be held accountable of course but if it meant getting at the systemic issues then many of them knew that even if they came to me in confidence that I would use the material they brought to me but I wouldn't necessarily expose them so they would lose their jobs and so I got a lot of material I got more material than the coroner's counsel so the and the corrections lawyers got about this case now think about that for a minute these are the people who are defending corrections they didn't even know the whole story and so I didn't have access to any of the coroner's file and we made sure the coroner knew because if I had gone to the things that I was saying in the media, the things that I was trying to get some public pressure on uh, to be exposed during the inquest, if I had had access to that and it was in the documentation the coroner had, then I would be precluded from saying anything about it. So they knew I had no access to it. So I did not know what was in the brief. I had a fair idea it wouldn't include a bunch of the stuff I was getting about, you know, forcible injections, about um, her being uh, transferred without legal authority. All of the things that came out eventually but the purpose of asking the question of the questions that i mentioned of the staff was i wanted people to have a, try and understand particularly the jury how people get characterized the way they do in prison so here's a young woman 19 when she dies serving a cumulative sentence of six and a half years um, i have to say i'm ashamed to admit even i thought there must have been something she did that caused them to describe her as so dangerous and violent. That usually there's one incident, you know, usually there'll be, you know, a major assault or something. The, the reason I say I'm ashamed is in, the, in Ashley's case, there was not. And believe me, well, you don't have to believe me, but I believe and will go to my deathbed believing if there had been, it would have either been leaked or it would have been produced because she was, you know, so much of her time in custody was videotaped. And so, so, you know, I, I was trying to get a grasp of how did this construction of her as dangerous and violent evolve. And so every single corrections person who was asked what they knew about her, they basically knew they were getting, because she was transferred 17 times in 11 and a half months all across the country, except for the Pacific region. And so what they knew, they knew that they were getting one of the most dangerous, violent women in the country. Okay, so that's what they knew. How did they know that? Well, they knew that because it was in the file and they'd read the file. How was she with them? Well, she was actually okay with them most of the time. You know, occasionally there'd be something that would set her off and she might be upset, but she was never really dangerous and violent. They never really saw what was described in the file. Okay, well then they'd, you'd bring up their file and they'd say, well, this is a report you wrote and you reinforce that she's still dangerous and violent. Well, yeah, you know, because, you know, I, you know, 
maybe uh, you know I just had a good rapport with her and so the image you get is okay maybe you have one or two staff but when you have all of the staff describing it this way you start to think okay somewhere along the line in whose interest was it to describe Ashley as dangerous and violent well it certainly wasn't in her interests but it allowed the system to then use physical restraints chem you know pepper spray chemical restraints forced drugging um you know forced treatment all the things that aren't that, that have legal limits on them and use them with abandon and then even when you're videotaping and you see her lying prone on in five point restraints you still describe her even if you're the nurse who's getting authorization from the psychiatrist you still describe her as out of control now occasionally her lying there would be accompanied by her yelling or swearing but then you listen to what she's actually saying saying okay what is she saying she's saying i'm bleeding i need a new tampon and you have someone joke with her quote unquote joke say change it yourself she's in five point restraints uh so then she starts to get irritated and she might tell you to f off or you know wait till i get you alone well so then she's charged with threatening how real is that threat in that context so you see this whole so this picture emerged and the other important piece that emerged was ashley was described as dangerous and violent not someone with mental health issues until after she was dead in the prison context the ability of the prison to appropriately diagnose is so limited because behavior that might be seen as symptomatic of a mental health issue in a mental health setting gets seen as symptomatic of criminality in a prison setting and so you know one of the things that the one of the reasons i think that the jury recommended that people be transferred out of prison for mental health supports and not that there be a whole bunch more mental health supports in prison they described more peer support they described the need for um supports for individuals to be able to be out of prison but they did not suggest that we should have a whole bunch more mental health supports in prisons because they saw very clearly that she wasn't diagnosed as having mental health issues she was diagnosed as a behavior problem and part of the reason i took postgraduate work in forensic mental health was because i was you know as i was doing this work and, and watching particularly with women uh seeing all and with young people before that as well with all but in particular for women i saw it more profoundly women coming in that in the community would likely be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress or you know, even schizophrenia or bipolar in a prison setting would be either first or re-diagnosed as having borderline personality conduct disorder um social disorders all you know and it became clear to me fairly quickly that these were all diagnoses that rest within the individual that are individualized diagnoses and what i mean by that is they rest within the person and the presumption is that the individual can control it so a post traumatic stress disorder or a schizophrenic or a bipolar disorder there's a recognition that that individual has a mental health issue over which they have no control but they need support that it's not their fault 
Whereas the other, it's almost like it, it transfers, it hyper-responsibilizes the individual to be responsible for their own treatment, their own, and so you'll see routinely you know, women who have experienced violence described as having personality disorders and as manipulative, as unable to control themselves versus, you know, they have virtually no ability to control their lives within a prison setting. And so, you know, it it, it really is a setup. And so that I think was part of what came out of the um, inquest into Ashley's death as well, although not as well recognized or publicized. But in her situation, it was clear that because by the end of her life the only human contact she had were violent interventions with staff she was seen as manipulative and violent and dangerous and so um behavior she had never exhibited before going to prison self-injurious but particularly the this issue of tying ligatures around her neck had never existed before she was held in segregation for long periods and you know i don't know about you but i cannot imagine craving human contact so badly that I would risk my life just to have even a violent interaction with staff. But that's where, that's what it, it had evolved or devolved or um, sunk to in terms of that was the only human contact. The last time I saw Ashley alive was just over three weeks uh, before she died. And she was not even allowed a crayon to sign her name. I had to write out a little you know, it's it's a legal thing, like a little affidavit, and have um, the officer in charge sign that the only reason she had not signed the um, complaint and, or the grievance and the request that I was filling out was they wouldn't allow her anything to sign. I had to hold it up to the window and, and read it to her and hold it up so she could read and because I wanted her to know exactly what I was writing and on her behalf. and. Um, and then as you probably know also, it took three three months for them to get that out of. She was dead over two and a half months before they emptied the box that I put that in. And corrections kept saying there was no complaints, there were no grievances, there were no requests that she'd put in for treatment. Uh, and I kept insisting there were. And then eventually, and I went to the correctional investigator and they said, well, there aren't any, they haven't seen any. And I said, you know, and finally I said, I know they're there because here's a copy because I kept a copy of them. And I said, and I put them in the box. So that's how I know they're there. And so then they went and emptied it. And sure enough, there they were three months after they'd been put in, more than three months after they'd been put in. So it, you know, it shows at every level the, um, the resistance, I was going to say the failure, but failure sounds too uh, benign. The resistance to accountability, to transparency, to remedying the wrongs in the system. And it's hence the reason why I think we have to come at this very differently and say, let's provide the supports in place to one, prevent people from ending up in prison as much as possible and meet their needs in the community hold them accountable if they need to be, you know, and as, allow ways for them to repay uh, for wrongs they've they've done. Uh, but where we don't achieve that, to do the best we can to get them out in a way that they can then contribute to society and contribute and be integrated into society ultimately. And, and that's really after, you know, I spent the first 20 years of my working life trying to reform the system to do the things of getting more programs in to try and, uh, you know, 
find fixes, if you will, to a system that doesn't want, that works exactly the way, sadly, I think it was intended to work. Yes, uh, thank you so much. Um, my last question actually was that do you see these changes are coming. Are we going to improve all this? Well, I think prisons were an experiment that came in to replace capital punishment and uh, maiming of people. And I think we now have recognized that what looked like a more humane response has created its own new levels of inhumanity. And so our our search for more humane ways continues. And so we see things like everybody agreeing first in the mental health settings that isolation was not an answer. It actually created more problems, more health, mental health issues. We're now seeing that recognition in prisons. And I think we're in a renewed space of saying, not everybody and not politically is it, is it um, embraced at this stage but in, you know increasingly many people recognize why are we putting more and more people into prison when what we really need are homelessness strategies prisons should not be the homeless strategy prisons should not be the treatment centers prisons should not be the response to poverty and so so we're increasingly recognizing that and saying it's not okay to just pretend that um you know, to look away when every other system fails, that increasingly we're saying we have to look at these systems. In the youth system in 2005, when the criminal justice, the Youth Criminal Justice Act was introduced, it was introduced because the numbers of young people had been going through the roof with the passage of the Young Offenders Act. And, and, um, and the presumption was that uh, you know, young people should first be dealt with in all other systems. Well, because there were young people, there was a greater, I think, willingness to look at that system and say, okay, what can we do differently? Well, when we brought in the law that required one major change, and that was before a judge sentences someone to prison, a young person to prison, they have to first consider why they're not using the child welfare system, the mental health system, or the education system. That change alone cut in half the number of young people in custody. So that showed us that actually if we tell judges you have to look to these other areas first and foremost, it changes the behavior. What it also exposed was the racism and the misogyny of the system because the ones, the numbers that did not go down in the same way, who was the greatest number of reductions in incarceration? White young men. Okay. Yeah, not Indigenous people. In um, when I was working on a sentencing of a young Indigenous woman uh, a couple of years ago, I discovered that 98 percent, 98 percent of the young women and girls in custody in Saskatchewan were Indigenous. Yeah. So we saw reductions overall, but percentage-wise, uh, Indigenous young people were and Black young people and other racialized young people were less likely to be, uh, to their numbers go down. And so they were reduced by five, 10%, but by comparison, um, the, the overwhelming was those who had relatively more intersectional privilege, if I can put it that way, were more likely to be released. And so it really underscored the fact that that's where we have to put our resources. 
not into more incarceration, not into more programs and services in prison, but in the community so that we're not sentencing kids or adults to incarceration, that they can be held in the, in the community, can pay back in the community. I mean, during, during this pandemic, I can't tell you how many people contacted me and said, um, you know, could we get out on a work release to build you know, um, housing for people to provide this space so people can be physically separate and help, you know, the he- meet the health um, recommendations. Others have been calling since the war in Ukraine uh, broke out and saying, could we go and fight for Canada? You know, and, uh, you know, we're not even in the war, but they wanted to do something to contribute. Um, and then the paradox, the other side is, the number of people I've, since the medical assistance and dying bill was um, amended have been calling saying they want medical assistance and dying rather than spend the next 15, 10, 15, 20 years in prison because of the conditions of confinement. So we have a lot of work to do and we have a, um, a lot of responsibility to address this. And I say we, I count myself. I, I have now chosen to be in this position and that means that I have to be working be part of um, trying to solve it, not continue to be part of the problem. Exactly. On behalf of all the Canadians, I would like to thank you, Kim. Um, you know, you, you're doing a great job and you're such a role model. Well, you're very kind. Thank you for all the work you're doing and for the incredible advocacy you do every day and the support you provide to so many.